Weeping Cedars is made possible by Patreon supporters like you. If you'd like to help us along the way, go to patreon.com slash weepingcedars. For $2 a month, you can support the people who make this show and get access to exclusive shows like Laughing Cedars, hosted by Weeping Cedars resident Eli Ford. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. The downtown area of Weeping Cedars is replete with all manner of businesses. There's an ice cream store and a waffle house, several places that offer more savory meals, a jeweler, two different kinds of hobby stores, doctors, dentists, a hiking supply store, and both a general liquor store and a wine tasting room. There are places to buy clothes, use books, toys, and fishing supplies. For a town of 1,500 people, there is a shocking variety of options. But if you were to look down on Weeping Cedars from Google Maps or do a flyover with a drone, you'd see that the shopping district, the 18th and 19th century houses, and the train that runs along the western edge of the town are all surrounded by dense forest and wetlands. There is no open farmland here, no wide fields, no place where you transition from town to wilderness. They come right up to each other. It's no wonder then that many of the legends about weeping cedars straddle that line between the dark, foreboding forest and the world of civilization. One of those legends, the one we're going to talk about on this episode, is about a young woman named Teresa Glynn and her relationship to the figure that the town calls the Yellow Eyes. This is Weeping Cedars, a weekly documentary about the history of a small town in northern Hamilton County, New York. We are telling its story week by week from the archives of the Weeping Cedars Historical Society. Our show is presented by Riley Howard and me, Lee Mitchell. The way was only a narrow deer path. The night was dark. The branches of the forest pressed her close by. But Teresa made her way without trouble from the Easter Rock to the door of the House of Needles. She dared not touch the door. For the many edges, honed and deadly, that made up that house were set on all sides. So Teresa waited while the dark of night grew darker still. After some time, the door of the House of Needles opened and a dim blue light fell upon the suppliant. She looked into that dread home and saw there the figure of the woman who she sought. Bent, wizened, and of a cruel countenance, the old crone looked upon her with eyes of amber that shone only with a diabolical hate. Yet the woman wagged a bent finger, and Teresa Glynn entered the House of Needles, there to name her lover for death. That text is from a book called Local Legends and Lore of Northern Hamilton County by Mary Fryer. Try saying that one three times fast. 
and it's a collection of different stories from some of the towns around here, like Old Forge and Shale Pond. There are two from Weeping Cedars, one of which is the story of Teresa Glynn. Now, it's worth mentioning that one of our main difficulties in doing this documentary has been trying to put things into the right piles. There's a pile for strange things that happen by the river, a pile for unexplained coincidences, a pile for things burning down. Now, in a normal town, I'm guessing that those piles would be largely separated out, and that only here and there you'd have to ask what pile an event belonged to. But in Weeping Cedars, the piles, well, they get messy. Take, for example, our third episode, the one on the minuet. Does that belong to the fire pile with the big fire in 1812, or should it go into the pile of things that have happened on the Econdeset? Or does it belong in the pile with other events that took over 30 people's lives? More on that last pile later. The thing about this messy history of the town is that you bump into things constantly that you didn't expect. Some of these unexpected discoveries are really big and change your perspective on a lot of things. Some are small, or at least seem small at first. It was one of these small discoveries that started us down this path. It was a shelf with two old books on it. One was a beaten up and faded dictionary, and the other was a book of local legends. I picked the second one up, flipped to the table of contents, and read a number of pretty innocuous chapter titles. Then I put it back. It wasn't until a couple of weeks later that we were looking at newspaper articles and found one that seemed strange. It was about a girl who got in trouble at school on Halloween in 1981 because she dressed up like someone named Teresa Glynn. The article goes on to say, The student, a senior named Melissa Day, had with her a number of items that she had labeled, overtly calling attention to their part in the local legend. Teachers agreed that the costume was in poor taste and asked Miss Day to store the labeled items in her locker until the end of school which Miss Day refused to do. Then she told them that she would perform the ritual, and they would all suffer the consequences. Now, there are a lot of things to keep track of in our research room. It looks, I admit, a lot like a conspiracy theorist's hidden alcove with the pushpins and the string. We have had to start a database of every mention of everything even mildly interesting that we find. And so far, this has been a big help. But, well, it only works if we remember to put things into it. And on the day I flipped through the Book of Legends, I wasn't in database mode. So I asked Riley about it. At first, I wasn't sure what the article was referencing. The name was familiar to me, but then we've read hundreds of names over the last few months. I read over the article a few times before a line jumped out at me. It's a line toward the end of the piece that says that after a confrontation in the hallway with two other girls, Miss Day threw several of her items on the floor and janitors were busy sweeping up needles for an hour afterward. It was the needles that reminded me of the legend, so I told Lee. And Riley telling me that it was an old legend reminded me about the book, which we immediately went to find. And couldn't. It was missing. That is, until we realized that Mr. Kleiber, our boss, had taken it upstairs and put it on display in the Historical Society's public room. 
I admit, however, that for about 20 minutes, we were really, really freaked out. We were able to get the book out of the case long enough to take pictures of a story called The Legend of Teresa Glynn. And then, after returning the book, we set about reading it over. And I have to say, I've read some books of legends in my time, and this story is very dark. In some ways, The Legend of Teresa Glynn follows a pretty standard format. A young woman is engaged to be married, and then her beloved falls in love with someone else, breaks off the engagement, and leaves the young woman brokenhearted. In some versions of this well-worn tale, the young woman kills herself. One of the first versions of this story I ever encountered was the song A Ballad from Celtic folk singer Kate Rusby's album The Girl Who Couldn't Fly. Her song is based on a poem by John Bolton Rogerson, a poet from the 19th century. His poem, also called A Ballad, tells the story of a young woman whose marriage is canceled because her betrothed has found another. Cast the gay robes from off thy form, and cease thine hair to braid. Thy love to thee will come no more, he woos another maid. And broken are the many vows that he had pledged to thee. He woos another maid, and this his bridal morn will be. In Rogerson's poem, the young woman dresses in her bridal gown and hides her face with a veil which he calls a thin shroud. And in the end, she dies, which is what she promised she would do if her love proved to be false. In the legend of Teresa Glynn, however, the spurned lover does not take her own life. Instead, she prepares her revenge and goes to a witch in the woods to exact that revenge in a particularly devastating way. That's the outline, but the details are what really gave us pause, because, well, there's that messy, intersecting pile of information that we've been collecting, and some of the particulars really jumped out at us. First, the book that we found has no date on it, but appears to be from probably the late 19th or early 20th century. This is helpful to know since the book introduces this story with a single line that reads, These occurrences took place in the town of Weeping Cedars at the beginning of the previous century. Immediately, the specificity of that information seems strange to us, but there's more. In the story, Teresa Glynn is betrothed to a man named James Cartwright, whose family is wealthy and important in the town. James was considered to be the pick of the litter of single young men of Weeping Cedars, and, according to the story, genuinely loved Teresa, the daughter of a cooper. In case you don't know, that's someone who makes barrels. The two promise themselves to each other, but when James' father finds out, who, by the way, is unnamed in this story, he forces James to abandon his promise. Now, James doesn't just roll over when his father tells him, you're not going to marry this girl or your inheritance will be taken away. In fact, James makes a really heartfelt defense of his love for Teresa and defeats his father's arguments. And here's where the story gets really dark for the first time. That night, the father goes out from the house and descends into the basement of the church to perform a supplication to dark powers. And when James awakes in the morning, his mind is changed. The story goes on to say that James then breaks Teresa's heart by marrying a young woman named Naomi. 
Teresa, coming into town on their wedding day and not knowing that any of it is happening, learns of his betrayal by seeing him and his new bride step out of the church together. James seems not to know Teresa, and there on the church grounds, Teresa curses them both, saying that they will not live to bear children from their treacherous love. That night, Teresa goes off into the woods to perform a ritual, and the book goes into a fair amount of detail about it. First, she goes to a place simply called the Witch's Cave, and there leaves a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine for the witch. Then, taking a rabbit, she goes to a place called the Easter Stone, and offers both more wine and the rabbit, which she kills on the stone, to the witch. Then, a path appears to her, and she follows it through the woods to the House of Needles. In the House of Needles, the witch hears her request, and Teresa leaves. Once the ritual is finished, James begins to have terrible nightmares of a figure outside his window at night. The figure taps slowly on the glass and looks in with golden eyes. The dreams repeat night after night for a week, and James becomes haggard and desperate. Then, after seven days of this, his wife Naomi is trampled to death in the street by a frightened horse. Unable to bear the loss, James hangs himself that night. The story ends with Teresa returning to the witch's cave to offer more bread and wine. At first, it was hard to know what to make of the story. Riley and I disagreed pretty heatedly about what the story is saying. I see some pretty clear marks of misogyny. The women are both victims and victimizers. They are agents of supernatural evil, and also, somehow, Naomi is as much to blame as James, even though, as far as the story is concerned, she doesn't do anything wrong. I, on the other hand, saw pretty much everyone in the story as victims, except the father and the witch. One male and one female monster, each representing classical mythological traits. The father is a symbol of law and order and will impose it by resorting to dark powers if necessary. The witch is a symbol of chaos, who can only be approached through law and ritual, the yin and the yang. The three younger people are subjected to these elder forces and are largely destroyed by them. And whether you read the story through a feminist view or through Jung or Campbell, the story remains one of many lives destroyed through arcane ritual and magic. What struck us then, and what remains starkly strange, is how specific the story was about names and places. Those names and places, with the exception of the Easter Rock, are all still present in the Weeping Cedars of today. So we had to ask ourselves, how much of the story was based on history? Could we find anything from the beginning of the 19th century that connected to the story? I'm not going to bury the lead here. We found every single name in the story. Every one. We were able to identify James Cartwright, his wife Naomi, his father, and even found references to Teresa Glynn herself. Let's start with Teresa because we found the least about her. She lived in Weeping Cedars at the beginning of the 19th century. We learned that she was the daughter of Elijah Glynn, who was, in fact, a Cooper, and Beatrice Inman. 
She was born in 1809 or 1810 and baptized in 1811 at St. Gladius's Church. The priest who signed her certificate of baptism was none other than Reverend Emmanuel Cartwright, the father of a young boy named James. After the baptism, however, we can find no mention whatever of Teresa Glynn. Now, again, we don't have all of the newspapers from this time, though we do have some from the early 1820s. We've been photographing them and indexing what we can when we have time. We scanned them for references, but we found nothing. On the other hand, the birth of a boy named James to Reverend Emmanuel Cartwright and his wife Mary in 1801 made the front page of the local daily paper. Reverend Cartwright was apparently something of a local legend. He had led his family pretty much unscathed through a smallpox outbreak a number of years before that wiped out almost the whole town. Two other families came through that smallpox epidemic mostly intact, the Johansons and the Kanickies. And in the year 1811, a girl named Naomi Kanicki was born to parents Jan and Flora. That young girl, 18 years later, would marry James. Within a year of their marriage, they were both dead. The graveyard of St. Gladius's church is large and perhaps only half full. Its layout is unique, as far as I know, in that the oldest gravestones are the farthest from the church. Someday, after a long enough period of time, the graves will make their way all the way up to the church walls. Standing there, especially in the early morning or dusk, it can feel as if there is an ever-growing wave of the dead that's building over the centuries to one day come crashing up against the stone walls of the old Episcopal church. It's as if one day there will be simply too many dead for the churchyard to hold them anymore. Toward the back of this strange arrangement, two inconspicuous flat stones sit about 15 feet from each other. They are clustered with those who have the same family names. The stones have been pretty well weathered by the nearly 200 years of rain, wind, and snow that have come and gone since they died. But with some squinting, they are still legible and each display only a first, middle, and last name, and then two dates. One, Naomi Elizabeth Kunicki. October 1st, 1811 to June 9th, 1829. And the other, James Emmanuel Cartwright. February 22nd, 1801 to June 9th, 1829. Naomi's stone, despite church records, newspaper articles, and a few journal entries that all confirm the event, does not show any evidence that she married James. The newspaper article that we found from June 10, 1829, relates a tale eerily similar to the story from the book. While walking down Javelin Avenue on June 9th, Naomi Cartwright, the newspaper gives her her married name even if the gravestone doesn't was trampled by a horse that had been startled by a falling crate filled with glass. The horse bolted and ran the 18-year-old girl down. The animal was so frightened that it fled north, through the graveyard and into the river, drowning itself in the Acondeset. That night, inconsolable, James climbed to the roof of a building on Javelin Avenue 
and hanged himself from a post above the spot where she died. So, the story behind the story has it all. Love and loss, joy and tragedy. But what it lacks is any connection to Teresa Glynn or the figure that the people in Weeping Cedars call Yellow Eyes. Now, this might be a good time to get into a little of that legendary figure, but we're actually going to save that for a couple of episodes down the line. We have hit on something there that needs a little more work before we can really tip our hand. However, I promise we'll come back to her. The question then remains, how does the young woman Teresa Glynn get caught up in all of this? There's no grave for her in the cemetery, and as far as we can tell, no mention of her in any other historical source. So it seems fairly likely that she just moved away. Maybe she married someone from another town over, maybe she visited family in Boston and got sick and died there. The possibilities are pretty much endless. That part isn't really the problem. There are plenty of people who just get lost in history. The problem is how this real-life young woman ended up in a story with these two other real-life people a century later. And this is where you can go one of two ways. Let's call this Lee's Way and Riley's Way. From my humble perspective, it is possible that two stories here got conflated. Let's say that Teresa ran off with someone else from another town. Perhaps there was a local boy who felt jilted by her. Maybe she even broke her promise to him about getting married. And then, poof, she's gone. And then, maybe he does what some men have done for a very long time. He lies about her, spreads rumors, and the story of Teresa Glynn grows. Then, a hundred years later, her story and the story of James and Naomi get confused with each other, and we end up with the legend of Teresa Glynn. And then there's my approach. And I know, my approach is going to sound far less believable. But as a local, I don't know. I'm not saying there's an actual yellow eyes. But I do think it's possible that the real-life story might be closer to the legend. It seems that in a town with a local legend about a witch who lives in the woods, it's not unlikely that a spurned young woman might seek that figure out. And then, through coincidence, the legend grows stronger when the people who were responsible for her pain both die in the same day. And that's the thing. Either might be true. The local girl tries to summon a witch and then the people she's cursing happen to die. Or rumors get mixed together. Or both. Or neither. We can't know for sure. There is, of course, one more possibility that might shed some light on this mystery. And that is that perhaps Teresa Glynn never left Weeping Cedars, and that she died in a place where she would not have been buried in the St. Gladius's church graveyard. There is such a place in the town, a place into which Teresa Glynn might have disappeared in her older age, never to be heard from again. And perhaps it would explain the stories of her communing with witches and cursing people in public. 
We will delve into the history of that place next week when we look at the institution once known as the Ikandaset Asylum for those bereft of their mental abilities. A place that the people of Weeping Cedars just call the house. That's next week on Weeping Cedars. Stay tuned. Weeping Cedars stars Catherine Bell, Laurel Johnson, Lou DePilla, and Byron White. This episode featured the song The Healing by Sergei Cheremisinov and music from Sebastian Gottlieb and David Swantek. Weeping Cedars is written and produced by Joshua Wise and is part of the All Ports Open Network. You can find us at allportsopen.com.